Story 7 of the Room in the Tower and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Room in the Tower and Other Stories by E.F. Benson How Fear Departed from the Long Gallery Hearst Parable is a household beset and frequented by spectres, both visible and audible, that none of the family with its shelters under its acre and a half of green copper roofs take physical phenomena with any seriousness. For to the parables, the appearance of a ghost is a matter of highly greater significance than is the appearance of the post to those who live in more ordinary houses. It arrives, that is to say, practically every day, it knocks or makes other noises, it is observed coming up the drive or in other places. I, myself, when staying there, have seen the present Mrs. Perivel, who is rather short-sighted, peer into the dusk while we were taking our coffee on the terrace after dinner and say to her daughter, My dear, was not that the blue lady who has just gone into the shrubbery? I hope she won't frighten Flo. We suffer Flo, dear. Flo, it may be remarked, is the youngest and most precious of many dead sons. Blanche, however, gave a cursory whistle and crunched the sugar left unmelted at the bottom of her coffee cup between her very white teeth. Oh, darling, Flo isn't so silly as to mine. She said, Poor blue Aunt Bababa is such a bore. Whenever I met her, she always looks as if she wanted to speak to me. But when I say, What is it, Aunt Bababa? She never utters, but only points somewhere towards the house, which is so vague. I believe there was something she wanted to confess about 200 years ago, but she has forgotten what it is. Here Flo gave two or three short please bucks and came up of the shrubbery wagging her tail, and curbing round what appeared to me to be a perfectly empty space on the lawn. There, Flo has made friends with her, said Mrs. Perivel. I wonder why she dresses in that very stupid state of blue. From this, it may be gathered that even with regard to physical phenomena, there is some truth in the proverb that speaks of familiarity. But the Perivels do not actually treat their ghosts with contempt since most of that delightful family never despise anybody except such people as Evelyn did not care for hunting or shooting, or golf or skating, and as all of their ghosts are of their family. It seems reasonable to suppose that they all, even the poor blue lady, excel at one time in a few spots. So, so far, then they harbour no such unkindness or contempt, but only pity. Of one parallel, indeed, who broke his neck in vainly attempting to ride up the main staircase on a thoroughbred mare after some monstrous and violent deed in the back garden, they are very fond, and Blanche comes downstairs in the morning with an eye unusually bright when she can announce that Master Anthony was very loud that night. He, apart from the fact of his having been so far a ruffian, was a tremendous fellow across country and they like this in the cases of the continuance of his superb vitality. In fact, it is supposed to be a compliment.
When you go to states at first parallel, to be assigned a bedroom is frequented by defunct members of the family. It means that you are worthy to look on the august and villainous dead, and you will find yourself sewn into some vaulted or tapestried chamber, without benefit of electric light, and are told that great-great-grandmama Bridget Ockerson ally has way business by the fireplace, but it's better not to talk to her, and that you will hear Master Anthony awfully well if he attends the front staircase any time before morning. There you are left for your nice repose, and having quirkingly undressed, begin reluctantly to put out your candles. It is dirty in these great chambers, and the solemn tapestry swings and bellows and subsides, and the firelight dances on the forms of huntsmen and warriors and stern pursuits. Then you climb into your bed, a bed so huge that you feel as if the desert of Sahara was spread for you, and pray, like the mariners who sail with St. Paul for a day. And all the time, you are aware that Freddy and Harry and Blunt and possibly even Mrs. Parable are quite capable of dressing up and making disquieting tappings outside your door, so that when you open it, some incontestable horror fronts you. For myself, I stick steadily to the assertion that I have an obscure morbular disease of the heart, and so sleep undisturbed in the new wing of the house where Aunt Barbara and great-great-grandmama Bridget and Master Anthony never penetrate. I forgot the details of great-great-grandmama Bridget, but she certainly cut the throat of some distant relation before she disempowered herself with the axe that has been used at Agincourt. Before that, she had led a very sultry life, crammed with amazing incident. But this one goes at such parable at which the family never laugh, in which they feel no friendly and amused interest, and of which they only speak just as much as is necessary for the safety of their guests. More properly, it will be described as two ghosts, for the haunt in question is that of two very young children, who were twins. This, not without reason, the family take very seriously. Indeed, the story of them, as told me by Mrs. Parable, is as follows. In the year 1602, the same being the last of Queen Elizabeth's reign, a certain Dick Parable was greatly in favour at court. He was brother to Master Joseph Parable, then owner of the family house and lands, who two years previously, at the respectable age of 74, became father of twin boys, firstborn of his progeny. It's known that the royal and ensign version had said to handsome Dick, who was nearly forty years his brother's junior, This pity that you are not master of such parable, and this was probably suggested to him a sinister design. Be that as it may, handsome Dick, who very adequately sustained the family reputation for wickedness, set off to ride down to Yorkshire, and found that, very conveniently, his brother Joseph had just been seized with an apoplexy, which appeared to be the result of a continuous spell of hot weather combined with a necessity of quenching his thirst with an augmented amount of sack, and had actually died while handsome Dick, with God knows what thoughts in his mind, was journeying northwards. Thus, it came about that he arrived at Church Parable just in time for his brother's funeral. It was with great propriety that he attended the obsequies, and returned to spend a sympathetic day or two of mourning with his widowed sister-in-law, 
who was but a faint-hearted dame, little fit to be mated with such hawks as this. On the second night of his stay, he did that with the perverse regret to this day. He entered the room where the twins slept with their nurse and quietly strangled the latter as he slept. Then he took the twins and put them into the fire which warms the long gallery. The weather, which up to the day of Joseph's death had been so hot, had changed suddenly to bitter cold, and the fire was heaped high with burning logs and was exultant with flame. In the core of this conflagration, he struck out a crimson chamber, and into that he threw the two children, standing them down with his riding boots. They could just walk, but they could not walk out of that other place. He said that he laughed as he added more locks. Thus he became master of such parable. The crime was never brought home to him, but he lived no longer than a year in the enjoyment of his bloodstained inhabitants. When he lay a dying, he made his confession to the priest who attended him, but his spirit struggled forth from his fleshy coil before absolution could be given him. On that very night, there began in church parable the hunting which to this day is but seldom spoken of by the family, and then only in low tones and with seriousness. For only an hour or two after handsome Dick's death, one of the servants passing the door of the long gallery heard from within peals of the loud laughter so jovial and yet so sinister, which he had thought would never be heard in the house again. In the moment of that cold courage, which is so nearly akin to mortal terror, he opened the door and entered, expecting to see he knew not what manifestation of him who lay dead in the room below. Instead, he saw two little white-robed figures toddling towards him, hand in hand, across the moonlit floor. The watchers in the room below ran upstairs startled by the crest of his fallen body and found him lying in the grip of some dread convulsion. Just before morning, he regained consciousness and told his tale. Then pointing with trembling and ash-gray finger towards the door, he screamed aloud and so fell back dead. During the next fifty years, these twins and terrible legend of the twin babies became fixed and consolidated. Their appearance, luckily for those who inhabit the house, was exceedingly rare. And during these years, they seem to have been seen four or five times only. On each occasion, they appeared at night, between sunset and sunrise, always in the same long gallery, and always as two toddling children, scarcely able to walk. And on each occasion, the luckless individual who saw them died either speedily or terribly, or with both speed and terror, after the accursed reason had appeared to him. Sometimes he might live for a few months. He was lucky if he died, as did the servant who first saw them in a few hours. Vastly more awful was the fate of a certain Mrs. Canning, who had the ill luck to see them in the middle of the next century, or to be quite accurate, in the year 1760. By this time the hours and the place of their appearance were well known, and, as up till a year ago, Visitors were warned not to go between sunset and sunrise into the long gallery. But Mrs. Canning, a brilliantly clever and beautiful woman, admirer also and friend of the notorious sceptic Monsieur Voltaire, willfully ran and sat night after night 
in spite of all protestants, in the haunted place. For four evenings, she saw nothing. But on the fifth, she had her view. For the door in the middle of the gallery opened, and there came toiling towards her the ill woman innocent little pair. It seemed that even then she was not frightened, but she told good poor rats to mock at them, telling them it was time for them to get back into the fire. They gave no word in answer, but turned away from her crying and sobbing. Immediately after they disappeared from her vision, and she rustled downstairs to where the family and guests in the house were waiting for her, with the triumphant announcement that she had seen them both, and must need to write to Monsieur Voltaire, saying that she had spoken to spirits made manifest. It would make him laugh. But when some months later the whole news with him, he did not laugh at all. Mrs. Canning was one of the great beauties of her day, and in the year 1760, she was at the height and genuine of her blossoming. The chief beauty, if it is possible to single out one point where all was so exquisite, lay in the dazzling color and incomparable brilliance of her complexion. She was now just 30 years of age, but in spite of the excesses of her life, retained the snow and roses of girlhood. As she courted the bright light of day with other women's sun, for it but so to greater advantage the splendor of her skin. In consequence, she was very considerably dismayed one morning, about a fortnight after her strange experience in the long gallery, to observe on her left cheek an ease or two below her turquoise-colored eyes, a little grayish patch of skin, about as big as a three-penny piece. It was in vain that she applied her accustomed washes and unguents. Vain, too, were the arts of her produce and of her medical adviser. For a week, she kept herself secluded, muttering herself with solitude and unaccustomed physics, and for result, at the end of the week, she had no amelioration to comfort herself with. Instead, this woeful grave had, had doubled itself in size. Thereafter, the nameless disease, whatever it was, developed in new and terrible ways. From the center of the discolored place, there sprouted forth little litten, like tendrils of greenish gray, and another pass appeared on her lower lip. This, too, soon vegetated, and one morning, on opening her eyes to the horror of a new day, she found that her vision was strangely blurred. She sprang to her looking glass, and what she saw caused her to speak aloud with horror. From under her upper eyelid, a fresh growth had sprung up, mushroom-like, in the night, and its filaments extended downwards, screening the pupil of her eye. Soon after, her tongue and throat were attacked. The air passages became obstructed, and death by suffocation was merciful after such suffering. More terrible yet was the case of a certain colonial blanchard who fired at the children with his revolver. What he went through is not to be recorded here. It is this haunting, then, that the parables take quite seriously, and every guest on his arrival in the house is told that the long gallery must not be entered after nightfall on any pretext whatever. By day, however, it is a delightful room and intrinsic ally Mary's description, apart from the fact that 
the due understanding of its geography is necessary for the account that here follows. It is full 80 feet in length and is lit by a row of six tall windows looking over the gardens at the back of the house. A door communicates with the landing at the top of the main staircase and about halfway down the gallery in the wall facing the windows is another door communicating with the black staircase and servants' quarters. And thus the gallery forms a constant place of passage for them in going to the rooms on the first landing. It was through this door that the baby figures came when they appeared to Mrs. Canning. And on several other occasions, they have been known to make their entry here. For the room out of which handsome Dick took them lies just beyond at the top of the back stairs. Further on again in the gallery is the fireplace into which he thrust them. And at the far end, a last bow window looks straight down the avenue. Above this fireplace, there hangs with grim significance a portrait of handsome Dick in the insolent beauty of early manhood, attributed to Holbein, and a dozen other portraits of great merit face the windows. During the day, this is the most frequented sitting room in the house, for its other visitors never appear there then, nor does it then ever resound with the harsh, jovial laugh of handsome Dick, which sometimes, after dark has fallen, is heard by a passerby on the landing outside. But Blanche does not grow bright-eyed when she hears it. She shuts her ears and hastens to put a greater distance between her and the sound of that atrocious mirth. But during the day, the long gallery is frequented by many occupants, and Emma's laughter in no way sinister or saturnine resounds there. When summer lies hot over the land, those occupants lounge in the deep window seats, and when winter spreads his icy fingers and blows sweetly between his frozen palms, congregate round the fireplace at the far end, and puts in companies of cheerful chatterers upon sofa and chair, and chair back and floor. Often have I sat there on long August evenings up till dressing time, but never have I been there when anyone has seemed disposed to linger over late without hearing the warning. It's close on sunset, so we go. Later on in the shorter autumn days, they often have tea late there, and sometimes it has happened that, even while merriment was most uproarious, Mrs. Perler has suddenly looked out of the window and said, My dears, it's getting so late. Let us finish our nonsense downstairs in the hall. And then, for a moment, a curious house always falls on Loquacious family and guests alike. And as if some bad news had just been known, we all make our silent way out of the place. But the spirits of the parables of the living ones, that is to say, are the most mercurial imaginable. And the blight which the top of handsome Dick and his doings cast over them passes away again with amazing rapidity. A typical party, large, young, and peculiarly cheerful, was staying at Sir's Parable softly after Christmas last year. And as usual on December 31st, Mrs. Parable was giving her annual New Year's Eve ball. The house was quite full, and she had commanded as well the greater part of the Parable arms to provide sleeping quarters for the overflow from the house. For some days past, 
A black and windless force has stopped all hunting. But it is an ill windlessness that blows no good. If so, miss a metaphor may be forgiven. And the lake below the house had for the last day or two been covered with an adequate and amiable sheet of ice. Everyone in the house had been occupied all the morning of that day in performing swift and violent maneuvers on the elusive surface. And as soon as lunch was over, we all, with one exception, hurried out again. This one exception was Matt Dalrymple, who had had a misfortune to fall rather badly earlier in the day, but hoped by resting her injured knee instead of joining the skaters again to be able to dance that evening. The hope, it is true, was of the most sanguine sort, for she could but hobble ignobly back to the house, but with the breezy optimism which characterized the parables, she is Blanche's first cousin. She remarked that it would be but tepid enjoyment that she could, in her present state, derive from further skating, and thus she sacrificed little, but might gain much. Accordingly, after a rapid cup of coffee, which was served in the long gallery, we left Matt comfortably reclined on the big sofa at right angles to the fireplace, with an attractive book to beguile the tedium tilty, being of the family, she knew all about Handsome Dick and the babies, and the fate of Mrs. Canyon and Colonel Blanchard. But as we went out, I heard Blanche say to her, Don't run it too fine, dear. And Max had replied, No, I'll go away well before sunset. And so we left her alone in the long gallery. Max read her attractive book for some minutes, but failing to get a sob in it, tilted it down and leaned across to the window. Though it was still but little after two, it was but a dim and uncertain light that entered, for the crystalline brightness of the morning had given place to a real obscurity produced by flocks of thick clouds which were coming sluggishly up from the northeast. Already the whole sky was overcast with them, and occasionally a few snowflakes fluttered wiveringly down past the long windows. From the darkness and bitter cold of the afternoon, it seemed to her that there was like to be a heavy snowfall before long, and these outward signs were echoed inwardly in her by that muffled drowsiness of the brain, which to those who are sensitive to the presence and likenesses of weather portends storm. Mars was peculiarly the prey of such external influences. To her, a brief morning gave an ineffable brightness and briskness of spirit. And correspondingly, the approach of heavy weather produced a soundness in sensation that both dwells and depressed her. It was in such mood as this that she leaned back again to the sofa beside the log fire. The whole house was comfortably heated by water pipes, and, and though the fire of logs and peat, an adorable mixture had been allowed to burn low. The room was very warm. Idly, she was the dwindling flames. Not opening her book again, but lying on the sofa with face towards the fireplace, intending drowsily and not immediately to go to her own room and spend the hours, until the return of the skaters made gaiety in the house again, inviting one or two neglected letters. Still drowsily, she began thinking over what she had to communicate. One letter several days overdue should go to her mother who was immensely interested in the physical affairs of the family. She would tell her how Master Anthony had been 
prodigiously active on the staircase a night or two ago, and how the blue lady, regardless of the severity of the weather, had been seen by Mrs. Parable that morning, strolling about. It was rather interesting. The blue lady had gone down the lower rock and had been seen by her to enter the stables, where, at the moment, Freddy Parable was inspecting the frost-bound hunters. Identically then, a sudden panic had spread through the stables, and the horses had mimied and kicked, and sighed and sweated. Of the fatal twins nothing had been seen for many years past, but, as her mother knew, the Parables never used the long gallery after that. Then for a moment she sat up, remembering that she was in the long gallery now. But it was still but a little after half past two, and if she went to her room in half an hour, she would have ample time to write this and another letter before tea. Till then she would read her book, but she found she had left it on the window sill, and it seemed scarcely worthwhile to get it. She felt exceedingly drowsy. The sofa where she lay had been lately recovered, in a grayish green silk of velvet, somewhat the color of lichen. It was of very thick, soft texture, and she lasciviously stretched her arms out, one of each side of her body, and pressed her fingers into the net. How horrible that story of Mrs. Canning was! The growth on her face was of the color of lichen and then without further transition or blurring of thought, Max fell asleep. She dreamed. She dreamed that she awoke and found herself exactly where she had gone to sleep, and in exactly the same attitude. The flames from the logs had burned up again and leaped on the walls, fitfully illuminating the picture of handsome Dick above the fireplace. In her dream, she knew exactly what she had done today and for what reason she was laying here now instead of being out with the rest of the skaters. She remembered also, still dreaming, that she was going to write a letter or two before tea, and prepared to get up in order to go to her room. As she half rose, she caught sight of her own arms lying out on each side of her on the grey velvet sofa, but she could not see where her hands ended and where the grey velvet began. Her fingers seemed to have melted into the stuff. She could see her wrist quite clearly, and a blue line on the backs of her hands, and here and there a knuckle. Then, in her dream, she remembered the last thought which had been in her mind before she fell asleep, namely the growth of the lichen-colored vegetation on the face and the eyes and the throat of Mrs. Canning. At that thought, the strangling terror of real nightmare began. She knew that she was being transformed into this grey stuff, and she was absolutely unable to move. Soon, the grey would spread up her arms and over her feet. When they came in from skating, they would find here nothing but a huge misshapen cushion of lichen-coloured velvet, and there would be sea. The horror grew more acute, and then by a violent effort, she shook herself free of the clutches of this very evil dream and see a book. For a minute or two, she lay there, conscious only of the tremendous relief at finding herself awake. She felt again with her fingers the pleasant touch of the velvet, and drew them backwards and forwards, assuring herself that she was not, as her dream had suggested, 
melting into greyness and softness. But she was still, in spite of the violence of her awakening, very sleepy and lay there till, looking down, she was aware that she could not see her hands at all. It was nearly very dark. At that moment, a sudden flicker of flame came from the dying fire, and a flare of burning gas from the pit flooded the room. The portrait of Hanson Dick looked evilly down on her, and her hands were visible again. And then the panic, worse than the panic of her dreams, seized her. Daylight had altogether faded, and she knew that she was alone in the dark in the terrible gallery. This panic was of nature of nightmare, for she felt unable to move for terror. But it was worse than nightmare because she knew she was awake. And then the full cause of this frozen fear dawned on her. She knew with the certainty of absolute conviction that she was about to see the twin babies. She felt a sudden moisture break out on her face, and between her mouth, her tongue, and throat ran suddenly dry, and she felt her tongue grate along the inner surface of her teeth. All power of movement had slipped from her lips, leaving them dead and inert and she stared with white eyes into the blackness. The spurt of flame from the pit had burned itself out again, and darkness encompassed her. Then on the wall opposite her, facing the windows, there grew a faint light of dusky crimson. For a moment she thought it, but heralded the approach of the awful reason. Then hope revived in her heart, and she remembered that thick clouds had overcast the sky before she went to sleep and guessed that this light came from the sun, not yet quite sunk and set. This sudden revival of hope gave her the necessary stimulus, and she sprang off the sofa where she lay. She looked out of the window and saw the dull glow on the horizon. But before she could take a step forward, it was obscured again. A tiny sparkle of light came from the hearth, which did no more than illuminate the tiles of the fireplace and snow falling heavily tapped at the window panes. There was neither light nor sound except this. But the courage that had come to her, giving her the power of movement, had not quite deserted her. And she began feeling her way down the gallery, and then she found that she was lost. She stumbled against a chair, and, recovering herself, stumbled against another. Then a table bowed her way, and, turning swiftly aside, she found herself up against the back of a sofa. Once more, she turned and saw the dim gleam of the firelight on the side opposite to that on which she expected it. In her blind gropings, she must have reversed her direction, but which way was she to go now? She seemed blocked in by furniture, and all the time insistent and imminent, was the fact that the two innocent, terrible girls were about to appear to her. Then she began to pray. Lighten our darkness, O Lord, she said to herself. But she could not remember how the prayer continued, and she had so need of it. There was something about the perils of the night. All this time, she felt about her with groping, fluttering hands. The fire glimmer which so have been on her left was on her right again. Therefore, she must turn herself round again. Lighten our darkness, she whispered, and then aloud she repeated, 
lightened our darkness. She stumbled up against a screen and could not remember the existence of any such screen. Hastily, she felt beside it with blind hands and touched something soft and velvety. Was it the sofa on which she had laid? If so, where was the head of it? It had a head and a back and feet. It was like a person, all covered with grey lichen. Then she lost her head completely. All that remained to her was to pray. She was lost, lost in this awful place, where no one came in the dark except the baby's dead cried. And she heard her voice rising from whisper to speech and speech to scream. She swigged out the holy words. She yelled them as is blaspheming as she groped among tables and chairs and the pleasant things of ordinary life which had become so terrible. Then came a sudden and an awful answer to her scream prayer. Once more, a pocket of inflammable gas in the pit on the hearth was whisked by the smoldering embers, and the room started into light. She saw the evil eyes of Hanson Dick. She saw the little ghostly snowflakes falling thickly outside. And she saw where she was, just opposite the door through where the terrible twins made their entrance. Then the flame went up again and left her in blackness once more. But she had gained something, for she had her geography now. The centre of the room was bare of furniture, and one swift dart would take her to the door of the landing above the main staircase and into safety. In that gleam, she had been able to see the handle of the door. Bright brass, luminous like a star, she would go straight for it. It was, but a matter of a few seconds now. She took a long breath, partly of relief, partly to satisfy the demands of her galloping heart. But the breath was only half taken when she was stricken once more into the immobility of nightmare. There came a little whisper. It was no more than that. From the door opposite which she stood and through which the twin babies entered. It was not quite dark outside it, for she could see that the door was opening. And there stood in the opening two little white figures side by side. They came towards her slowly, softly. She could not see face or form at all distinctly, but the two little white figures were advancing. She knew them to be the ghosts of terror, innocent of the awful doom they were bound to bring. Even as she was innocent, with the inconceivable rapidity of thought, she made up her mind what to do. She had not heard them or laughed at them. And they? They were but babies when the wicked and bloody deed had sent them to their burning death. Surely the spirits of these children will not be inaccessible to the cry of one who was of the same blood as they, who had committed no fault that merited the doom they brought. If she entreated them, they might have mercy. They might forbear to bring the curse on her. They might allow her to pass out of the place without like, without the sentence of death, or the shadow of things worse than death upon her. It was but for the space of a moment that she hesitated. Then she sank down on to her knees and stretched out her hands towards them. Oh, my dears, she said, I only fell asleep. I have done no more wrong than that. She paused a moment, and her tender girl's heart thought no more of herself 
but only of them, those little innocent spirits on whom so awful a doom was laid, that sin should bring death where other children bring laughter and doom from delight. But all those who had seen them before had dreaded and feared them, or had mocked at them. Then, as the enlightenment of pity dawned on her, her fear fell from her like the wrinkled seed that holds the sweet folded buds of spring. Dears, I am so sorry for you, she said. It is not your fault that you must bring me what you must bring, but I am not afraid any longer. I am only sorry for you. God bless you, you poor darlings. She raised her head and looked at them. Though it was so dark, she could now see their faces, though all was dim and wavering, like the light of pure flames shaken by a draught. But the faces were not miserable or fierce. They smiled at her with sigh little baby smiles, and as she looked, they grew faint, fading slowly away like wreaths of vapor in frosty 311. Mads did not at once move when they had vanished, for instead of fear, there was wrapped round her a wonderful sense of peace, so happy and serene that she would not willingly stir, and so perhaps disturb it. But before long, she got up, and feeling her way, but without any sense of nightmare pressing her on, or frenzy of fear to spur her, she went out of the long gallery, the fine blunts just coming upstairs, whistling and swinging her skates. How's the leg, dear? She asked. You are not limping anymore. Till that moment, Max had not thought of it. I think it must be all right, she said. I have forgotten it anyhow. Blunt, dear, you won't be frightened for me, will you? But, but I have seen the twins. For a moment, Blunt's face whitened with terror. What? She said in a whisper. Yes, I saw them just now, but they were kind. They smiled at me, and I was sorry for them. And somehow I am sure I have nothing to fear. It seems that Matt was right, for nothing untoward has come to her. Something, her attitude to them, we must suppose, her pity, her sympathy, touched and dissolved and annihilated the curse. Indeed, I was at church parallel only last week, arriving there after dark. Just as I passed the gallery door, Blanche came out. Ah, there you are, she said. I have just been seeing the twins. They look too sweet and stop nearly ten minutes. Let us have tea at once. End of How Fear Departed from the Long Gallery